a series called The Process of a Dream and Making a Difference in the World, and we're looking at the life of Moses as our guide and an illustration of how this thing kind of happens. This is part three. We'll close it next week with part four. But today we'll look at attributes of those who make a difference. How do these dreamers make a difference? What are the characteristics or attributes of people that do make a difference? Let's do a little review. We said last week, can I make a difference with my life? People often ask that question. And we said we believe it's absolutely God's design that everybody live a life that makes some difference. In Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So we don't hide it, we let it shine. We don't sit in a church cocoon. We're supposed to go out like salt out of a shaker and touch our world. And I know, well, it's bad, it's ugly. Well, salt is a preservative. So God wants you in the world, but not of it. That just means I don't let it shape my values. I don't let a celebrity tell me how to think. Thank you very much, goofy girl. You're going to tell me what my view should be or how I should think. I don't think so. But I appreciate the entertainment world, and I appreciate uh, the sports world, but they don't shape my values. God shapes my values. His Word shapes my values, right? But I'm in it, and uh, Jesus was always chronically criticized as being a friend of sinful people. He went out where they were, He engaged them, and He touched them. So don't shy away. So the, the way we let our light shine is the way we relate to God, the way we relate to one another. The way we relate to our culture, that demonstrates the light that's now, if you're a believer, resident in us. Our, our problem is often a faulty perception about what does that mean? A lot of people don't think they make a difference unless they have a public profile and people can see what they do. But none of us can determine the scope of our ministry or the size of it. I, I don't get to determine how I'm born, what gifts I have given to me by God, God shapes that. My, my deal is use what I've been given. Paul said this, one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. Some of you might speak to tens of thousands, others one by one. But the other person is not any more important than you are. In fact, one of the things we learn to do is to accept our playing field. You know, I remember D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman working in a department store when uh, Mr. Kimball came in from the church and witnessed to him, led him to Jesus. Well, he only led one person to Jesus, but that one person shook major continents with the gospel of Jesus. So that person that only gets to speak to one every now and then can, can nail one that speaks to the world. You just never know, right? I remember Billy Graham was up in North Carolina. And when he was a 16-year-old boy, I'm trying to think, Gypsy Smith or someone was preaching at that time and complained that only one person accepted Jesus in the little revival in a little small country church, but it was uh, Billy Graham. And it made a big difference in the world. So somebody had to go to that obscure place and uh, make a difference with a young boy. So don't question the fact of where God places you, whether it's on a stage or in a back room or in a nursery or wherever it may be. That's God's placement for you, and He knows exactly what He's doing. Our job is to accept our playing field. If you're always undervaluing what you are and overvaluing what you're not, you'll never live a life that's very effective. 
So you've got to place value on who you are and what God's gifted you to do, not what He's gifted somebody else to do. If you get into the comparison game, you're always going to come up short. There's always somebody better, bigger, shorter, thinner, hotter, buffer, uh, hairier, whatever. I, 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 you just can't go there. You just said, hey, I'll do the best with what I got, but I am what I am by the grace of God. I accept that. God made you uniquely you, and if He'd have wanted anybody else, He could have had them. But He chose you, so go ahead and live life to the full as you are. So you have no other responsibility in life than to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. I won't give an account for what God has not given me. I will give an account for what God has given me. So I accept the playing field. Now, to review, we talked about six obstacles Moses faced in having his dream and destiny and making a difference in the world come true. And we said, you and I will face every one of these. Let's review them. First, his purpose was threatened right at birth. Most dreams, most visions are challenged early. Because if you can kill something at birth, you kill its opportunity to flourish, to grow, and to develop. You want to hit it while it's weak. Some of you could be going through absolute pain, misery, and hell, and, and probably would say to me, there's not a reason in the world this is even logical. I haven't done anything to merit this. Yes, but the enemy sees your future. And that's why he attacks, because he wants to stop you early. So instead of sucking your thumb and whining and complaining to everybody on Facebook about how sucky your life is, you, you might want to pause and say, well, I wonder what the enemy sees I don't see in my future. I think I'll hang on. I think I'll wait around and see what it is. It must be some kind of a threat to stir the interest right now when I don't have anything. I haven't become anything. So maybe there's something good in my future. That's another way to have perspective. I've held on to that many, many times of you. Many of you early in life had words spoken over you, or you had a bad experience, and you've allowed your dream to be aborted. People said things like, that's not possible for you. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never afford that. We can't afford to do this. This is not what you're made for. You should pay attention to this. Now, you've let those words kind of strangle the life out of the thing God meant for your good. Secondly, Moses was raised with ungodly influences, and yet God got him. So hang on. Don't worry about a total pure society. It doesn't exist. It couldn't be any harder for you in our culture today than it was for Moses living in the palace of Egypt. Moses was daily surrounded by everything that was opposed to what it meant to serve the living God. Jesus said, you're in the world, you're just not of it. I don't want you out, I want you in. Pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Quit worrying about when's the rapture. <laughs> I mean, do something while you're here, okay? That's the whole idea. You're no good to God on earth once you're in heaven. You only serve His purpose on this earth. Third, we said Moses experienced failure. Well, welcome to the club. I don't know of anybody, Christian or non-Christian, that ever became a success at anything that didn't taste failure, and often several times. And for many, their success was determined by their capacity to overcome initial failure. 
The Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times, yet the Lord will uphold him. Failure is not fatal unless you give up. And basically, you, you have two choices. You can give up or you can get back up. So God's challenge is get up. Don't let the failure keep you down. God hasn't changed his mind. His gifts and his callings are irrevocable. So people will convince you, the enemy will try to convince you that because you had a bad past or you've had an initial failure or something didn't work, whatever it was, that God won't use you now. That is the biggest lie you could ever believe. That's not true. So it's not failing that's the problem. It's my response to failure that determines my future. Fourth, we said Moses faced rejection. It says of the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus, he was despised and rejected of men. It says in the gospel of John, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Boy, that's a fact. And if you think church is a refuge from rejection, oh, I got land to sell you in the Mojave Desert. You can get your deepest hurt around religious people. Well, that person hurt me, so I'm just going to move my membership and go somewhere else. Well, goody, goody, God will have somebody there waiting on you. You can run, but you can't hide. You're going to face rejection. I don't care who you are. You just have to say that's part of life. That's part of the package. Everybody's not going to like you. It isn't even normal. Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. I mean, some people, that's their greatest fear, that somebody might not like them or speak evil of them or say something nasty about them. And if you dare step out of status quo, I guarantee you, we live in a culture where every nobody do anything will take a little computer and say ugly things about you. And 90% of the dumb people believe it. That's what's even worse. No substantiating evidence, but people will believe what they hear. Sad. It's just sad. But hey... What am I telling you? I'm just telling you, don't come telling me, well, they, they're saying bad things about me. Whether you're going to go into politics or you're going into uh, the Christian field or you're going into uh, the entertainment business or whatever field or occupation you choose, everybody's not going to like you. Just a fact of life. I'm sorry. It doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. It just means they're not part of your life or your future. Walk on by. That's it. Just... Say bye-bye. Don't worry about it. Get excited about the people that stay with you. That's what counts. Not who left, who stayed. Yeah, that's, that's God will always have the right people with you. And some people are with you for a reason. Some people are with you for a season. And some people are with you for life. Now yeah, celebrate them all. God uses them all. It's just the way, the way it goes. It's rare there's, that everybody's with you for the full ride. It just doesn't usually work that way. We said, fifth, Moses felt a personal sense of inadequacy. Well, don't we all? Don't we all? I feel it every week. Many of you feel you would obey God's call, Rick, if I had a burning bush like Moses. Well, Moses had a burning bush, and he said, no, not me. Send Aaron. I'm slow of speech. He was sure fast on his excuses, though, wasn't he? That dude was, was quick. But Moses kept resisting even to the point he's making God mad. And it's possible to say no for so long to God's repeated invitations. He just puts you on the shelf and he'll use somebody else. I don't want anybody else taking my place. Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the rocks will. I don't want a rock taking my place. 
So some of you need to open your mouth at praise time and praise Him. God says, I can replace you with a rock. To play. How about that? Mm. Number six, Moses was subjected to unusual preparation. A lot of us want a position, but we don't want the preparation for the position. And the longer you resist the preparation, the longer it's going to take. It says, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace uh, for the sake of Christ greater value than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. I see five things in Moses' life that are reproducible that will help us, like him, make a difference. Here we go. Number one, Moses was fearless. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. Making a difference in anything necessitates some risk-taking. If you're going to make a difference, you'll do things you've never done before. And fear will be the one thing that stands between you and what you've never done before. First time you ever bought a house, well, what if the economy, what if I lose my job? Can we make those payments? What if this happens? Even buying a house, there's some fear attached to it. In the church world, when we built this building, there was some fear attached. What if, what if? Can I say to you, no matter what you're going to do, there's going to be what if? What if? But you can't live by what if, what if, what if? You've got to live by good consensus, wisdom, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and then you step out in faith and take the plunge, or nothing's going to happen. If we'd have waited till all conditions were perfect, we wouldn't be in here, that's for sure. And most of us wouldn't be where we are in life. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting until I can afford it to get married. Well, I'll, I'll see you on a walker when... when. We're going to have, we're going to, we want to wait to have kids till we, we get everything right. Now, nah, there ain't no time for right. Doesn't matter when you have them, there's trouble. That just, you just jump in. And you can read every book on children and they won't match yours. It just won't, <laughs> won't work. It's if, all people got kids, they'll tell you the same thing. You get two of them and you can't believe they came out of the same person into the same egg in the same womb and it's Jekyll and Hyde. What happened? Who hijacked that seed somewhere? Somebody messed with that thing. I, 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 we talk about it all the time, how, how different our children are. But their futures are different. Their, their gift is different. Their purpose is different. God designed it that way. You as a parent just have to make the adjustment. So you've got to have courage to risk, to reach, and to put yourself on the line. James Allen wrote, you will never do anything worthwhile without courage. Nothing significant will ever happen. Martin Luther King, Jr., the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. That's when it counts. It takes courage to break a relationship that's going south, that's abusive, that's not right. And a lot of, a lot of women struggle with that. It takes courage to, well, what if I don't get anybody else? You just going to keep an abuser? Well, what well, doesn't make sense. 
Randy Ross once was going to remarry a couple that had gotten divorced, and they both were active in church. They were both doing well. They thought they ought to reconcile and get remarried. It sounded good, but I, I liked what Randy said. He said, write me each a letter and tell me what's different now. Because if nothing is different now, you're going to get the same result. Right? I mean, that's getting back your ex is kind of like having a yard sale and you go out and buy back all your stuff. What? I don't get it. If it wasn't any good, what are you going back to it for? Fear. Fear I won't have anybody. Fear I'll be alone. I'll buy you a dog. Come on. Be less trouble. And fear will evidence itself in a number of ways. Fear of people. What keeps most people from sharing their faith with other people? Fear. And then there's fear of forces. That's the fear of opposition. What if I say yes to God? Rick, what kind of challenges will I face? Oh, I could say big, hairy, ugly ones. Yep, you will. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a great and effective door is open to me. That's Paul. But there are many adversaries, those who oppose me. Paul was opposed every day of his life. Oh, we love to quote the scriptures about Paul. But read the ones you don't like about uh, he's been in jail, imprisoned, beaten. The, the guy had the most abusive life of anybody other than Jesus in the Bible. Every open door, I promise you, there'll be opposition standing at the door, which is probably a good test that God might be in it for the enemy to oppose it so badly. It's just the nature of spiritual warfare. Nothing that makes a difference will occur without opposition. If you want to change anything in business or the church or the government or, or, or even in sports, oh, all hell goes online to oppose. Because there are people that are going to lose their position, their spot, their control, their power, their influence, and they don't want to. So there's going to be opposition to just about anything like it. So the question is, is it right? That's the big question. Is it right? If it's right, then you do it, regardless of the opposition. And then there's challenges and obstacles, fear of the fences. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there's always somebody to tell you you're wrong. There are always difficulties arising which tempt you to believe your critics are right. But to map out a course of action and follow it to an end requires some of the same courage which a soldier needs. Peace has its victories, but it takes brave men and women to win them. And then there's just the old fear of failure, another kind of fear. Somebody says the real problem with failure is fearing that you will, and that'll keep you living in a mundane life for the rest of your life never rising to new challenges to do something you've never done before. Uh, Forty years ago, I was on a Delta Airlines flight out of Atlanta, Georgia, and I was seated next to a man who sells uh, fish, uh, exotic fish in tanks, and, uh, trying to aquatic life forms. And he told me the number one seller were these six-inch sharks in office aquariums. And I found, I says, well, that's what's going to happen when that sucker gets big? And he said, oh, no, you don't understand. He said, the shark will never outgrow its environment. 
But if I took the six-inch shark and I put it in the Pacific Ocean, it'll grow to eight feet. So the environment will constrict its potential for growth. That means, that means if you, you know, some of you live in a mud puddle. You ain't never going to be a great white shark. You're going to be a mud-sucking guppy. You got to get out, you got to get in some deep water, and then guess what? You grow big. You go back home to some of you, go back to your culture, your church. Some of you like me that come from, been around a long time, and it's like, wow, they're still in the little mud puddle. They, they didn't expand. They didn't learn. They didn't grow. They didn't change. They could be so much more effective, but they hadn't even been out of town. They don't realize what a great big world we live in out there. It's a, it's a fact. So if you, you know, change the environment, you stay with a bunch of small-minded people, you're going to think like them. Don't let a little culture or a race or a political group or a religious group, don't let it contain you. Learn. If there's truth there, good. But don't let it own you and contain you. It'll keep you small. Okay. I'm just telling The first time I came to this town and met a whole bunch of preachers for a lunch, I realized I got to get in a bigger pond. This is too small. I don't like it. I, 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 I just... You know, whether or not you can have a tattoo, just not a big issue with me. Just not a big issue. I'm not going to get to heaven and Jesus says, uh, hey, strip, I want to see if you got a tattoo. <laughs> and let me check for a little body piercing, too, while we're at it. What stupid talk, stupid stuff that goes on. No wonder people stay out of church. I would, too. I'm serious. I would, too. I remember being on a staff, and when I was, Cindy and I were young, we started there, and he lined us up on the stage in these big old chairs we sat in like rulers, Uh, but I think there were six of us on the staff. And I remember sitting up there in the winter, and drool is is warm in that building. The sermon was so boring. It was no fun. And, And I remember thinking, I hate this. I, if he didn't pay me, I wouldn't even be here. <laughs> really, so I feel for you. I mean, I really do. You know, occasionally you could just walk up and say, Rick, it sucked today. I just want to tell you that. Okay, <laughs> I'll do better. I'll try to do better. But they never engaged us at all. There was never any humor. There was never any, wow, that's a great point to make. It, it was just no life in it. Anybody go to that church but me? <laughs> I, I didn't like it. Church is kind of fun now. I enjoy it, I, I, and I like what I do, and I have fun doing it. But you can't, be af- you can't be afraid you may fail. I didn't know if this church would go or not go. Nobody did. Nobody knows when they start. You just take the nest plunge. You get good wisdom. You get prayer. You get advice. You listen to your heart. You go for it. That's it. That's all I know to do. And I do know that if you fail, he says, I'll pick you back up. Don't worry about it. But I'd rather try and fail than not than fail to try. Some of you need to try. Yeah, I want my own business. Well, try it. Put some money on the line. Get out of the boat. Get in some deep water. Get your little floaties off in the shallow wind. Get in the deep end where all the screaming people losing their bathing suits and going off the high dive. That's where the action is. Woo! <laughs> you get the picture. So boldness is something that should characterize the life of every believer. You can have a shy personality, but in Christ you can be bold as a lion. 
Jesus told the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem until you get power from on high. Because without it, without it you're not going to have the equipment. Boldness is not in you. It comes by virtue of the endowment of God's power. And when He settles upon you, you'll say something you wouldn't normally say. You'll do something you wouldn't normally do. He says, don't get drunk with alcohol wherein is excess, but be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. So alcohol will make a man who normally would be shy, it'll make him say something stupid, do something stupid, pick a fight with three people. I remember watching that one time with a drunk, and I thought, this idiot, if he wasn't drunk, wouldn't do this. He's lost his mind. But Jesus says, now the same way, I'll get you out of your shy, withdrawn little temperament if you'll get some power of the Holy Spirit on you. I, I'll, I, you, you'll, you don't normally do that, but you'll do that under His power. And those fearful disciples, when they got power on them in the upper room, came out bold as lions, shook up, turned the city upside down, it said. Wow, pretty good, yeah. right? So it'll enable you to do things beyond your natural temperament or ability. Stop excusing yourself based on your temperament and receive God's capacity to do things you never dreamed of. Second attribute of people that make a difference, Moses had a passion for God. Moses' passion was exemplified a couple of ways. He said, first, unless your presence goes with us, don't send us. Moses understood the only thing that separated Israel from the other pagan nations was the tangible presence of God. He didn't want to go into the wilderness, headed to the promised land, unless God's presence went with them, and I don't either. You know, I'm not a very emotional person, but the strong presence of God will melt me every time. We've, we've had People come to this church, and depends on what the message might be, but said they felt such a presence of God they couldn't stop crying. And the strong presence of God melts resistance. That's why I say I'm not a, a crier typically, but I've had God's presence sometimes, and it'll, it'll melt that old hardcore exterior, and I can't help it. I mean, it's just God. It's the presence of God. And that's all Moses wanted. Secondly, when Moses was nearing the end of his life and God's favor was strong upon him, God asked him, what can I do for you? And Moses said, show me your glory. That means passion comes from cultivating a relationship with God, some kind of a secret history there. Then you can come with boldness and tell the Lord what you want. And He always responds to hungry hearts. God loves to be pursued. Moses wanted God above anything else, and he got it. Passion is contagious. People want to feel your heat. Here's the third attribute. Moses was a learner. Moses was a learner. Exodus 18, verse 13 through 27. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the nation of Israel. They stood around him from morning till night. Can you imagine? When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what in the world are you doing? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till night? Moses says, well, the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, they bring it to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law said, what you're doing is not good. You and all the people who come to you are going to wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You're going to end up in divorce court. You're going to run off and have an affair. This is too—I added that, you understand. 
You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them His decrees and instructions and show them the way they're to live and how they're to behave. But select capable leaders from the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who have who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That'll make your load lighter because they will share it with you. How many of you see he's teaching him delegation? He's saying, don't do it all yourself. If you do this as God commands you, You'll be able to stand the strain of this ministry, and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel. He made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. So Moses is doing all the decision-making. A couple of million Hebrews out there. He's doing it all. He's wearing himself out. He's headed for a breakdown and a crisis. His father-in-law Jethro suggests wisdom that, Moses, you just take the hard cases. Let the 70 elders handle the routine matters. And then he set up leaders of 10, 50, 100, and thousands. Every woman or man has a measure of gifting. Some have the capacity to handle 10 people, some 50, some 100, some thousands. And when you go and see those different leaders that have great churches and others that have a couple of hundred, one isn't better than the other. They just have a different level of gift. If I bring them on stage and they preach to you, you'll see the difference. So we have small group leaders. Those would be people that would run a connect group, 10, 12, 15 people. They didn't count women back then. So you can see they have the capacity to engage and train those people. But if everything has to come to the leader, every request, any number of our leaders can handle that. They know exactly what advice to give you. My secretary, Judy, almost 30 years with me. She can tell you how I'm going to respond and what I'm going to say to almost anything. She's heard me enough. She can, she'll say, I know what you're going to say. See, they know. You say, well, I need Rick. No, you don't need me. I'm the last resort. That's, that's going to take three minutes. You listen to these other people. They're smart. They know God's Word. They've been around. They've got a good lifestyle, a good marriage together. They are not perfect. None of us are. But they've got the wisdom to solve your problem. You just think you need to, I've got to have you pray for me. No, no, no. Jesus delegated His authority to His disciples. And when they went in His name, they carried His authority. And if I delegate somebody to come see you, to pray with you, they're carrying my authority just as though I've gone. When an ambassador goes to another country and delivers the presidential decree, it's not his importance. He's been delegated that authority. And he carries all the authority of the United States government when he goes as an ambassador. We're ambassadors for Christ. So I've got delegated authority, and they have delegated. Quit thinking you've got to get to that one person. You'll kill them. 
And that ain't going to happen on my watch, okay? <laughs> not going to happen. Been, I've been to that rodeo before. No, no, no. That's not dedication. That's stupidity, and God says so. That's called wisdom. Moses submits to the advice of his father-in-law. He gets an education on the spot, and immediately he becomes more effective in his leadership. If you want to live a life that makes a difference, you got to commit to a lifestyle of continued learning till you die. Louis Armstrong said, there are some people, if they don't know, you can't tell them. Isn't it true? Show me a person not effective, and I'll show you somebody who hadn't learned anything new. I'm always listening, going to a conference, online. What do they know I don't know? Sometimes you'll listen to a whole message for one nugget of truth, and it can change your life. So I tell our staff and different leaders, what are you reading? What do you, go online. You can hear the greatest speakers in the world online for free. Just plug in and listen. Don't stay at your level or somebody will take your place. Keep learning. Keep learning how to get new recipes. My wife's always filing recipes. I don't eat it, but she files them anyway. I quit eating the sugar and all. It, it's good. But about good food, she'll try them. And new ideas. The girls, do you keep learning? I mean, you, you learn how to do different things. It makes you multi-gifted. It broadens your perspective. Read books. Go places. Listen to CDs. Uh, uh, go online. Check into a seminar that you could. You don't have to drive to a seminar. You can watch it online. And that's cool, huh? If you're going to stay married 50 years, you better learn something new from when you said, I do. And we're dumb as a donkey, didn't know what in the world we're doing. <laughs> Till death do you part. And, and uh, for better or worse, and you had no idea how worse worse could be when you're standing there. But you, if you don't learn something new, you'll divorce. You, or you'll live unhappy. So we have seminars, and we try to get people to learn something, say, man, that was a good idea handling the children. That's a good idea of how to respond to my wife. I learned something. I'll implement that. So you got to do more than just learn it. You got to do it. And then it makes your life better. Successful people who make a difference in life are constantly growing and learning. And it doesn't matter how significant you become, you must remain a learner. You can never outgrow your need to learn something new. And you can learn from diverse sources, young people, old people, especially people different than you. You can learn something from a Democrat. You can learn something from a Republican. You can learn from failure. You can learn from people who blew it out of the water bad what not to do. You can learn from people and cultures different than you. And if you want to relate to another culture, you better make some friends with people out of that culture so you know how they think and what's their perspective. It makes you a better person. If you just hang around everybody like you, how boring. You'll never change. You'll never grow. And you'll be least effective in reaching those other people. That's a fact. I love their input and their perspective to how do they, they think. See, everybody wasn't raised like you, so they don't have the same perspective. They don't know what you know. And if you know more than somebody else, you're under obligation to extend more grace to them. They don't know what you know. That's why they're talking like that. Jesus did it. You can do it if you want to. Okay? Some of you would rather be a Texan than a Christian. Or you'd rather be a affiliated with a political party than be a Christian. 
No, no, no. I'm not giving my life to anybody except Jesus. I'm not giving it. Well, I gave it to my wife, but that's, uh, that doesn't, that's different, right? No, no, don't you give away your thinking and your mentality, some group. Well, they won't like you. Absolutely true. Some people in there won't because you're not singing the party line. I'm singing the biblical line. And the biblical line will offend some people. Let her rip. Too bad. Suck it up. Get over it. Deal with it, Jack. If it's eternal and it's God's will, then I'm on the side that wins, period. I'm going to hold that view. So I can learn from a lot of people in a lot of different areas. They don't even have to be from my religious group. I can learn a truth. Number four, Moses was selfless. In Exodus 32, it says, the next day Moses uh, said to the people, you've committed a great sin. They built a golden cow, remember? Now I'm going to go up to the Lord. Maybe I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses goes back to the Lord and he says, what a great sin these people have committed. They've been in idolatry. They made themselves gods of gold. Please forgive their sin. But if you won't, then blot me out of the book of life that you've written. God's angry. He's about to judge the whole nation of Israel. Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, if you won't forgive them, then just blot me out of your book of life. He was completely devoid of selfish ambition to lead. And so filled with a desire to serve, he was willing to sacrifice himself for the whole nation. How many leaders would jump at the chance to have a nation formed out of them? Because God says, I'm going to destroy them, Moses, and I'll build a new nation out of you. Wow. And Moses, good thing he wasn't American. And then Moses said, no, no, you just take me out of the book of life if you're not going to forgive them. Watch out for people who are too ambitious to lead. Many times they're unfit for it. The big challenge in church life is to find people who will serve. And to make a difference means service. I was so pleased that had so many people show up to help those children for Christmas Blast and every other outreach we have. We couldn't do it without all the people around here who are serving right now. And that many, you'll never know their name. Jesus said, he who's greatest among you, let him be the servant of most. He who will lose his life for my sake will save it. So at some point you have to put others ahead of your own needs. And Moses did. And then number five, here's the last one. Moses made hard choices. Hebrews 11 verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Moses is giving up power, position, and pleasure. And he's able to make it because he had a vision of the future greater than the present. People who can't make hard choices lack a great vision. When Alexander the Great had vision, he conquered the known world. When he lost it, he couldn't conquer a liquor bottle. When David had a vision, he conquered Goliath. When he lost that vision, he couldn't conquer his own lust with Bathsheba. When Samson had vision, he won every battle. When he lost that vision, he couldn't conquer a 110-pound Delilah. When Peter had vision, he could preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. When he lost his vision, he could not admit he was a follower of Jesus to a teenage girl. 
The decisions you and I are making today are determining how we're going to live over the next five, ten years. To be effective and to make a difference, you might have to make a hard choice, just like Moses. One that might make you look like a loser. But the moment he made that hard choice, he instantly became a winner in God's kingdom. You might have to turn down fame and big money to do the will of God. Some people might or to do what's right. But never make a decision based only on immediate personal reward. You make it because it's right. Then you win, even if you lose. So what are you living for? What you live for determines whether you make a difference or not. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media 